All right, if you're able to stand, uh, let's do that for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, verses 10 to 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 26. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said to him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So today we're going to be talking about while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's going to be the overarching theme today. Um, there's no long introduction today, no story. We're just going to get right into the text, all right? Uh, this is a powerful account, and I was, I was emotional as I prepared this message. It just um, really struck me. Uh, my understanding of Jesus' love for me, and my appreciation for his sacrifice on my behalf was intensely deepened by this passage. So here we go. So in verse 10, it says that Jesus went to Dalmanutha, which is on the west side. We did a huge, long uh, geographic, geogra- uh, geography lesson last week. But Dalmanutha is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. That's near Magdala. It's the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus headed again into Jewish territory. And he was near Capernaum, which was his hometown, uh, or near his hometown of Nazareth. And it was there among his people that Jesus encounters another confrontation with the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees. So we see that in verses 11 through 13. And you can you just follow along as I go through here. I'm not going to read it, but you can follow along as we go through. So it says that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. So they came. Now the assumption is that these Pharisees again came from Jerusalem. Remember a few chapters ago, they came from Jerusalem and they, they, they had some accusations for him, but they just couldn't stay away. They had to discredit Jesus somehow or they would look like evil buffoons, right? He was kind of making them look like not such good people. And a few days before, Jesus had called them hypocrites and pointed out their inconsistencies and their hypocrisies. If the people began to believe what Jesus said, if they began to really look into their traditions and the guidelines and find out the truth behind what the Pharisees were doing, the amount of money that people gave to Corbin would start to dry up, right? And they would be less and less 
uh, wealthy. People would begin to realize that they could live in freedom and, and not simply, by, by simply loving God and loving each other instead of following hundreds of rules and guidelines. And the Pharisees knew that these rules and guidelines were only in place so they could control the people and pad their pockets. So they came and they argued with him. Now I wish Mark would have recorded this conversation, uh, although I can, I can guess as to why he didn't. Uh, have you ever tried to reason with someone who's unreasonable? Or have you ever tried to talk sense into someone who has no common sense? Or have uh, you ever tried to speak truth to habitual liar? It don't work, does it? It's a frustrating to watch. If you have ever watched even one episode of the TV show, The Office, you know what I'm talking about. Even watching a fictional conversation between Michael Scott and just about anyone else can be extremely frustrating. Well, that's a fictional TV show. You don't have to look far today to find unreasonable, false, illogical conversations and arguments going on. And so you know exactly what we're talking about here. I think Mark wants to keep us from getting frustrated with the ridiculous, petty, selfish, arrogant arguments of the Pharisees because the details are not important to this account. The point of these three accounts, as we will see, all lead to the climax in chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter answers the question, who, do pe who do you say I am from Jesus? The Pharisees were seeking a sign from heaven. Ironically, they had the sign of heaven standing right in front of them, God Almighty in their midst. He had proved it multiple times, but they were too blind to see it. They were too deaf to hear it. So lost in their own selfishness and deceit, blinded by their own pride and their power, deafened by their rules and their guidelines, concerned with only purity and restoration of Israel, they sought a sign from heaven to test him. Now the word test here means to scrutinize, to tempt, to try. This wasn't a test to ascertain Jesus' knowledge of some scriptural text or some truth. This was an inquisition in essence. He was on trial. They wanted to ruin him and his reputation by cornering him. And they wanted to discredit Jesus and prove that he wasn't or couldn't possibly be the Messiah. According to the ancient non-canonical Jewish writings, like those in the Apocrypha and things like that, there were a lot of writings that were outside of the Bible that these people knew about. Um, there was very influential, which were very influential in the Jewish minds, these writings were, during the time of Jesus. If Jesus truly was the Messiah, then there were certain things that his coming would entail, according to these writings. There were, it would be full of miraculous signs and wonders, more like fire from heaven and earthquakes, things like that. It would be full of conquest. The Messiah was to come as a conquering king. He would be killing his foes in battle, exacting vengeance on the Gentiles. It would be a total destruction followed by the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem in power and in might. So if you really are the Messiah, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God as you claim to be, then show us a sign from heaven. Do what, it, do what the prophecies say will happen. Now of all the things Jesus had done, wasn't that enough to prove that he was God? I mean, there's a voice from heaven at his baptism. Walking on the water doesn't seem to do the trick. Feeding 10,000 people in the desert with manna from heaven wasn't big enough for them. In every instance, too, Jesus had more than three witnesses for everything that he did, which means that it was validate, validatable evidence, right? 
When he raised the dead, he healed the deaf, he healed the leper, he walked on the sea, he cast out a legion of demons. In every situation, multitude of people saw what he did and could testify to the fact that he did it. So they all saw it. But the Pharisees were not seeking a miracle. They were asking for a sign from heaven, some validation from God himself that Jesus was who he said he was. And this is the age-old dilemma, I think. It's incredibly difficult for humans to understand and acknowledge that the creator God, the sustainer of all life and all that there is in the universe would come in the form, would not come in the form of a conquering God. Instead, he came as a man and lived among us. And it just doesn't seem right that God did not come to conquer and to kill, but to be killed. That doesn't make sense. It seems foolish. Why would a God become a weak human? Why would a God limit himself? Why would a God walk around in the filth and the mire? Why would a God be born to a woman? Why would a God start his human life out as a carpenter? Why would a God eat and sleep? Gods don't do that. Gods are muscular giants of indestructible flesh. Gods are not limited by time and space. Gods do not walk around in the marketplaces. They sit in ivory thrones and inort temples wielding power over the masses. Gods do not associate with common folk, especially the physically and mentally handicapped. Gods don't associate with the losers of society. Gods do not have to work as carpenters. They simply speak and things are done for them. Gods are not born to women. They come down through a portal in the sky with flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. Gods do not eat and sleep. They are not weak like that. Gods are gods. They can do what they want, when they want, and how they want. Gods kill evil people. The Messiah wasn't supposed to heal the Gentiles like Jesus had just got done doing. The Messiah was supposed to slaughter the Gentiles and establish his kingdom in Israel. Jesus, if you really are God, then stop hiding behind this humanity and really show us your power. Don't give us these cheap tricks that only help one or two sick and worthless outcasts anyway. Change the world. That is what gods do. They change the world. They eradicate evil forever, Go destroy evil Rome and every other evil nation under heaven and rule us as God. Give us a sign from heaven. Then we will believe that you are him. You know, God's going to come and he will destroy evil. The Old Testament, New Testament both foretell it. It will happen. But first, it was the compassion and mercy of God Almighty that devised an incredibly loving plan. A plan that would result in his own death so that all evil in the world would have a chance to be saved from the ultimate destruction. It was actually a brilliant plan. And we are part of it even today. By God's mercy, through belief in the person of Jesus, all believers will escape the judgment of God when it does come through a portal in the sky with lightning and an army behind him to wipe off, wipe off evil from this planet. Jesus came to give even the most vile person, the most evil person, a chance to believe and escape the terrible fate that awaits everybody, which is eternity apart from God, if we don't believe. And the plan of God includes everyone. 
But everyone has to come to the same conclusion on their own, that Jesus is God, and each individual must believe that. God in the person of the Messiah hadn't come to kill, but to be killed. Jesus had to go through the, with the plan, suffer, die, rise again. And each person needs to make a decision whether to believe in Jesus and this plan or not. And Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. The good news, the plan of God Almighty has been enacted. It's time. Believe it. This was Jesus' message. Like many today, the Pharisees were not convinced. And I think they thought something like this. Unless Jesus can prove it the way we want him to prove it, making our lives better, then forget it. We'll kill him instead. Then let's see how his plan works out. I heard a pastor once say, they want the kingdom, they just didn't want the king. So Jesus responds. Let's look at Jesus' response. It says that he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So he sighed deeply. The only other recording of Jesus sighing is in Mark chapter 7 when he healed the deaf man. They are different Greek words, but both carry the meaning of a deep groaning within the spirit. Jesus groaned and sighed a deep within his spirit. Now what is Mark trying to say by mentioning that Jesus sighed? So we see that Jesus sighed or groaned in response to physical deafness. And here Jesus sighs and he groans in response to spiritual blindness. I believe that Jesus' spirit was broken for the world. How humans are bound up and blinded and deafened by sin and its consequences. In our anger at injustice and evil, our hearts can get caught up, like the, like the Pharisees, in the evil intentions and vindication. All of our hearts tend towards selfishness and pride and self-preservation and revenge and killing those who hate me. And in that, the good are no better than the evil. And it breaks the heart of God. And Jesus groans within his spirit. He was sighing because some, including the Pharisees, would be lost, caught up in their righteous indignation at Jesus, and they would not believe in the way of Jesus. But he also knew that the plan would allow for so many more to be saved from the vicious cycle of sin. So he sighed, and then he spoke. He said, why do you seek a sign? No sign will be given to this generation. That's a really interesting thing that Jesus said there. This, this word generation, the language here referring to generation, can be tied to two signs, two, two generations or big events in the Old Testament. You can look at Genesis chapter 6, Noah. All right, it says that Noah was a righteous man before God in his generation, meaning everyone who was alive on the planet in that generation, all right? However, in Genesis 6, 6, it says that God saw a man's wickedness and he was sorry. Some translate it to be regretted that he made man. When I looked up the word regretted in Strong's Concordance, the first meaning for this word regret was, guess what? To sigh. To breathe strongly to be sorry. God sighed and the sign of his judgment was a cataclysmic flood. 
a carnage that wiped out almost every person on the planet. The second instance of this generation tied with a sign was Israel in the wilderness. So the, the whole generation of Israel were given a chance to follow God. Instead, they hardened their hearts. They made a golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, and they bowed down to worship it. And God saw their sin, and he decided to consume them all in a moment, it says. He wanted to wipe them all out. But Moses intervened, and he prayed, and it says in Exodus 32, 14, that the Lord relented from his disaster. Now, the word relent is the same word as used in Genesis chapter 6. God sighed, and he breathed strongly. Another word of the a nuance of the word, another way in which it can be translated is to comfort or to be moved with compassion. So God sighed, and his, his sign of his judgment wasn't immediately carried out, but that whole generation died in the wilderness. They never got into the promised land. So here we see Jesus sighing deeply and saying that no sign would be given to this generation. And here's what I believe Jesus is saying. According to the commentaries I read, the last part of verse 12 is a difficult phrase to translate where he says, um, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Greek begins with the word if and reads something like this. If a sign shall be given to the, this generation, may I die. If a sign shall be given to this generation, may I die. I believe that Jesus was saying that the sign of God's judgment would not come on this generation because instead it would fall upon Jesus himself. Think about, about it. In the face of his greatest opponents, the ones who would later murder him for claiming to be God, which he indeed was, Jesus says to their face, you don't get the sign from heaven because you really don't want the sign from heaven. You would be wiped out. If a sign is to be given to this generation, I'm taking it for you. I'll take it on the chin. And further evidence for this comes from Matthew's recording of this account. He records Jesus as saying this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly of a great fish. So Jesus would spend three days in the belly of the earth, buried, dead, because he took the wrath and judgment of God upon himself. You see the irony here? If Jesus were to eradicate evil in the way that they wanted him to eradicate it, then they would have been swept away right along with everyone else that they thought were evil. They would have been destroyed too. For they did not recognize, that we learned earlier, that evil comes from the heart of a man. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And although they did not want to admit it, their act were just as evil as King Herod. They just had a nicer religious veneer over the top. So Jesus sighed. He had compassion. He relented. He walked away knowing that he would die in their place. It says that he left the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out? He said, if they do not receive you, if they do not listen to you, you are to do what? You're to shake the dust off your feet and leave. They were not to call down fire from heaven upon their enemies. They were not to bring in the army and execute everyone who disagreed with them. They were to, in love, leave their fate in the compassionate hands of Almighty God. 
So Jesus left another Jewish town, not to return again to it, as a testimony against them. This was actually an act of mercy, for he did not give them the sign that they thought they wanted. Let that sink in for a minute. Like, just think of the restraint, the love, the compassion, the justice, the wrath, the righteousness, and the holiness of Almighty God. It's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He had all of that right there, and he refrained from bringing that judgment down on them, on them that deserved it. He refused to argue. He refused to do what they asked. He remained true to God's will for him. He went to the cross, and he took God's judgment, which was rightfully to be poured out on them, upon himself. And this frames what comes next in the account. Turn to verse 14. It's the story of the, uh, the disciples and Jesus in the boat. So Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples, and he, he left this town. And I picture Jesus being very heavy of heart. Lost in thought, he's saddened by the loss of these people, grieved by what they will suffer, an eternal fate because they refuse to believe in him. And as he's sitting there in the stern of the boat, staring out across the water, his heart is in pain. He knows that he will take the punishment for them even though they will continue to reject him. And there are the disciples. They're sitting there in the boat. Some are rowing, some are casting a line. Andrew reaches into his basket and he tries to reach for some bread and there is none. So he asks around and there's only one loaf of small bread on the boat. And they begin yelling at each other because they forgot to bring bread to eat. Like little kids, they're teasing each other and blaming each other and totally oblivious to what Jesus is going through. And the implications of what he had just said to the Pharisees. The disciples did not understand the debate with the Pharisees. Why didn't Jesus just go ahead and give them a sign? It would have been the logical and, and only appropriate thing to do. And then pretty much out of the blue, from the disciples' point of view, Jesus cautions them. And so let's look at this crucial warning. Jesus cautioned them, verse 14, he says, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he says, watch out. I recognize that this talk about bread and leaven can get a little bit confusing. Uh, when I first read through this, I was like, well, what in the world is going on here? What is leaven about? What does bread have to do with it? How are the Pharisees and Herod actually connected? So here's the thing. Here's how the Pharisees and Herod are connected. It comes from the context of Mark. Neither party understood who Jesus was. As a result, they didn't believe in Jesus or what he said, that the kingdom had come, that the gospel was here. They were deaf and blind, and their disbelief led to rejection and open opposition. Remember how Mark described the disciples after both episodes of them being in the boat during two separate storms, right? In Mark 4, 41, they say, who is this, right? In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, they did not understand the loaves, about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. So here's two stories in a boat, and there's loaves and hardened hearts, and who is this, right? Leaven in Scripture is, about, um, is a metaphor for sin and evil, unbelief. This leaven of unbelief was potentially in the boat with Jesus, creeping its way into the minds of the disciples. And unbelief leads to rejection and opposition. Rejection of God leads to him sighing and bringing down judgment, so Jesus warns them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, there's two slightly different leavens. So 
The scribes and Pharisees had claimed that Jesus, remember, was of the devil. So they disbelieved in Jesus and they opposed him, casting doubt in the minds of people, saying that Jesus could only get the type of power that he had from Satan himself. They had said that Jesus had an unclean spirit. He was an evil imposter. Why? The Pharisees accused him of eating with unwashed hands. Under a veneer of religiosity, the Pharisees pursued power and wealth, and they were characterized by outward cleanliness and exclusion. They protected themselves from dirty, contaminated people, staying safe and minimizing risk so they could control. They lacked compassion and love. And they criticized Jesus for being unclean and hanging with unclean people. The Messiah was supposed to come in power and cleanse the world, cleansing it from the filth of the Gentiles and the sinful ones. Jesus was not only not cleansing the world of the riffraff in their minds, he was welcoming them. He was becoming one of them. Their leadership was characterized by bondage to rules and guidelines. The rules that were meant to be a means of aiding people in their walk with God were elevated so highly that they were actually keeping people from freely worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And the Pharisees perpetuated the system because it brought them a sense of safety, a means to the control the people, and a, a funnel for their coins to their purse. Eleven of the Pharisees led people away from Jesus into religiosity and unbelief. They rejected Jesus, and sadly, rejection and disbelief, as we saw, is the eternal sin. So he says, beware of that. And he says, beware of the leaven of Herod. Herod misinterpreted Jesus' actions as being the actions of John the Baptist, remember, whom he had killed. He did not believe that Jesus was anyone to be concerned about, though. He didn't necessarily reject him. He kind of ignored Jesus. Herod had other things to occupy his mind. Herod was characterized by a lust for pleasure and sensuality. He used his power to protect his reign by pleasing the senses of his guests and, and buying their allegiance and killing anyone who got in his way. He protected himself and he kept himself safe by using swords and money. He lacked compassion and love. And his leadership led to bondage in irons and chains for anyone who did not obey, who got in the way of his own agenda and his personal pleasure. Herod perpetuated a system that oppressed the weak and the poor and conquered the strong. So Herod's way was characterized by sensuality, vengeance, killing, conquest. Eleven of Herod led people away from Jesus and into self-centered, self-gratifying lifestyle of personal vengeance and unbelief. And disbelief in Jesus is the eternal sin. So Jesus was warning his disciples to be aware of these two polar extremes, these evil ideologies. He told them to watch out for them. Their ideologies might seem smart and sophisticated, logical even, but like leaven in the dough, their lies would cause their hearts to bloat with contamination and sin. Their ideologies, if listened to, would either have them reject and oppose Jesus or ignore him. Both extremes, religiosity or sensuality, were rooted in unbelief. So Jesus questions the disciples, are your hearts hard? Have you eyes and don't see? Have you ears and don't hear? And we've heard this theme all throughout Mark, remember? He's asking them this question again. Do you not remember? 5,000 loaves or 5,000 people. How many baskets left over? 12, one for each of the tribes of Israel. 
Instead of a sign of judgment upon Israel like Herod would have wanted, Jesus gave them a sign of God's compassion, how he would provide a way for them to be saved. And then 4,000 people, how many baskets left over? Seven. Remember, the number of completion. Instead of a sign of judgment upon the Gentile nations, which was what the Pharisees wanted, Jesus gave the Gentiles a sign of God's compassion, how he would provide a way for them to be saved as well. Jew or Gentile, they, the way to eternal salvation was through belief in Jesus. Now, why link their hard hearts to the loaves? What's going on there? Now, Mark had linked their hard hearts with not understanding about the loaves one other time in Mark 6.52. They were astonished to see Jesus walking on the water and did not understand the full implications because it says that they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. I would argue that all of this boils down to hardness of heart toward Jesus' identity. Now, there are all kinds of themes in the past stories that are coming together in this passage and in the, in the one that we're going to look at next week. There's the, the theme of Herod, Pharisees and the scribes, the feeding, incomprehension, hard hearts, disciples questioning, who is this? Do, Jesus passing them by, remember saying, I am here. Do not be afraid. Jesus healing the deaf, cleanness, defilement, glory. All these things are wrapped up and coming to a head here. And all this will culminate in Peter's confession of Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Which contains Jesus' articulation afterwards, after Peter confesses that you are the Messiah, Peter's gonna, or Jesus is going to say what it means to actually follow him then, if you believe that. In short, Mark is keying in on Jesus' identity, which the disciples in the moment was actually an enigma. They, it wasn't until the end of his life that they actually really got it. So he says, do you not yet understand? The Messiah didn't come to kill and destroy. He came to provide a way to be reconciled back to God. And this is what it's all about. All about. It's a symbiotic, reciprocal relationship with the God who created us. Imperfect because of us, yes. But a, depend, a dependable, comforting, healing courage-building, loving relationship with God. This is what Jesus has made a way for us to have. Not that we are perfect, clean, pristine, religious know-it-alls on the outside, but that we simply have a relationship with the God of the universe. Every day, everywhere we go. So Mark lets that question of Jesus hang in the air. And Jesus and disciples then arrive at Bethsaida, a town that was populated by both Jews and Gentiles, but predominantly Gentiles. And here again, the Gentiles are the ones who are accepting of Jesus. They believe he's the Messiah for them as well. And so they bring a man that was blind to Jesus. And that's verses 22 to 26. You can follow along as we go through here. So um, they bring the blind man to Jesus. And the more I study Mark, the more I, and I look at how he crafted his work, the more in awe I am of how intricate and full of meaning his writing is. This gospel is God's gift to us, connecting so many things in the Old Testament with the mysterious way of Jesus and the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So what did Jesus had just got done saying to the disciples? He said, having eyes, do you not see? So this parable right here of healing the blind man is another real-life parable, not only for the disciples, but for us. Just before they left the other shore, Jesus had healed a deaf man way back in uh, let's see, chapter 7, verse 31, he'd healed a deaf man. The accounts of Jesus healing the deaf man 
and the blind man are actually really similar. The people, both Gentile, all the Gentiles, bring these two people to Jesus. And they beg Jesus in both accounts to touch him, to lay his hands on them. In both accounts, Jesus takes the deaf and the blind man out of the crowd, the personal touch of Jesus. With the blind man, he actually takes him by the hand, the compassionate touch of Jesus. And Jesus uses spit in both stories. I find that very fascinating, spit in both situations. And Jesus touches both of them as he heals them. It's the personal, sensitive, understanding, compassionate heart of God is displayed in Jesus. So he took gently led him out of the village, away from the prying eyes, one-on-one with Jesus. And Jesus touches the man. Now this man would most likely have been unclean. He was a Gentile. Yes, but he also couldn't see. So he was contaminated by walking on and touching things that were unclean. But Jesus doesn't care. He loves. The Messiah came to demonstrate the compassionate heart of God to an evil and unclean generation. He did not come to destroy and kill the unclean, but to cleanse and heal. As with the healing of the deaf man, Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah 35 that said, The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The disciples witnessed this miracle with Jesus' warning and questions still ringing in their ears. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not understand? And Jesus asked this man, do you see anything? Now this is a little bit bizarre. Why is this miracle of Jesus not complete? This is the only one where healing doesn't happen immediately and fully. This one healing episode. Did Jesus fail? I believe that Jesus and Mark are giving us a real life parable. It is a description, a metaphor of the disciples who in the very next scene will admit to knowing who Jesus is, but they will not fully understand the purpose of his coming. They will in essence see people looking like trees, but they won't quite get the full picture. They saw Jesus, they believed that he was the Messiah, but everything else was a little bit fuzzy. He had laid his hands on his eyes, so the touch of Jesus can heal over even the most stubborn of blindness. And what we're going to see is that the power of Jesus can heal even the most hardest of hearts. I know that's not good English, but it fits. The hardest of hearts. He saw everything clearly. With Jesus' touch and Jesus' power, he saw everything clearly. Perfect sight for the blind, and we will see perfect understanding for the hard-hearted. So from here, Jesus is going to begin his journey to Jerusalem and to his death. From here in the book of Mark, it's all pretty much downhill to Jerusalem and death. There's another healing of a blind man just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So Jesus both begins and ends his journey into Jerusalem by bringing sight to the blind. And we're going to look at the significance of that a little bit later on. So let's wrap it up. The question is, where are you today? Are you like the Pharisees? Do you want Jesus to give a sign? Do you want him to come in power and in might and destroy all your enemies, wiping them off the face of the earth? Do you want Jesus to reign right here and right now? To some extent, I think we all do. And Jesus said that he would return a second time in power and might as a conquering king. So 
The hope isn't altogether unreasonable. It's, it's actually part of our hope that we do have. However, in the meantime, we are faced with the reality that God's judgment was already poured out. A sign did come from heaven. His judgment was poured out on his son as the sky darkened and the earth shook and the temple veil was torn in two. He did make a tremendous entrance. To us, it seemed to happen, though, to the wrong person. That wrath should have been poured out on our enemies and the really evil people, right? Come save us, Lord. And what we don't recognize is is that in our anger and injustice and evil, our hearts get caught up in evil intentions and vindication. We assume that we are the good guys and everyone else is evil. But in Jesus' economy, the good and the evil, the good are no better than the evil. We are either Herod's or Pharisees, and both are full of leaven. Herod's pridefully pursue pleasure and sensuality here on earth. Anyone who hinders them receives their anger and vengeance. The Pharisees pridefully pursue power and wealth. They hide behind religiosity and shun anyone who opposes them. We tend towards one or the other. For we are all born evil, selfish, idolatrous. We all need saving from what comes out of the heart of a man. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I need Jesus just as much as my enemy needs Jesus. All of our hearts uh, tend towards selfishness, pride, self-preservation, revenge, power, wealth, pleasure, killing those who hate me. We want Jesus to do it our way. Eradicate evil and save me. But if Jesus were to eradicate evil in the way that I wanted him to eradicate it, then I would be swept right along with everyone else. I would be destroyed too. Oh, how badly we all need Jesus. He compassionately sighed and took the judgment of God, which all of us so rightly deserved upon himself. God's wrath and power and indignation and punishment and fury for all the wrongs we have committed, all the people that we have sinned against, all the idolatry that we have pursued, all the perversion that we chase after in all the ways in which we rebel against our creator who loves us, Jesus took it all for us. And Romans 5 says, For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be made saved by his life. Have you ever pictured yourself before you believed as an enemy of God? Until you do, I don't think you can grasp the extent of God's love and grace in sending Jesus to take your place in death. Jesus inaugurated a new way, a way so radical that it shakes the foundation of the earth. It reorients the very essence of what it means to be human. Instead of killing his enemies, he died in our place. Where do we need to repent of being like Pharisees or like the Herod? And I'll land the plane with this. Jesus' message is extremely important for today 
in our Herod and Pharisee polarized world. Repent and believe in Jesus, for the kingdom of God has come. We are Jesus' disciples. A disciple follows in the footsteps of his master. Now here's the thing. Even though the disciples' hearts were hard, they never stopped following Jesus. Don't lose the significance of that. I think it gives us hope. For all their imperfection, their doubt, their misunderstanding, their bewilderment, their fear, their hesitancy, they continued to follow Jesus. Though their understanding was fuzzy, they still believed. And Jesus did not cast them aside. He worked with them and he worked on them. He gave them evidence of who he was. He told them not to fear. He explained the mysteries and parables and he calmed their nerves. He fed them food. He warned them about dangerous ideologies. Jesus never let them go. And he will never leave us either. And his warning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod, is a demonstration of love and grace to us to check our hearts. So we repent, we believe, we follow Jesus on the journey to Jerusalem. And we're going to look at next week at what Jesus said it means to actually follow him. It's pretty convicting stuff. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Just think, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So as we follow Jesus, what does it mean to lay down our lives for our enemies as Jesus did for us? Let's pray. Father, wow. It amazes us as we look at the life of Jesus how incredible your love is for us that you would, you would dare to die for enemies of you. Those who really, in ourselves, would have absolutely no desire to look to you, to follow you, to worship you, any of that. In fact, we spit in your face. And yet you still sent your son to die for us. And we sit here right now, God, by grace, through your mercy, and through the death of your son, and we, we know that we're made whole. We have a future because we simply believe that this story is true, and that you did this for us. What a privilege, what an honor, what a blessing. We thank you for that. As we go from here, may that just sink into our hearts and lives. May we, may we look at people differently this week as we go from here. May we have the eyes of Jesus. May we perceive as he perceives. May we love as he loved so be with us as we go from here. Take, use us in this world for your good and to bring your gospel to those who so desperately need it. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, why don't you stand for our benediction? Don't forget, we have coffee out in the foyer. Stick around and chat and talk and send your kids out to the, to the playground out there. Some of them are already out there. Look at that. All right. All right. Receive this benediction. May the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes. The love of God be reflected in your hands. The wisdom of God be reflected in your words. And the knowledge of God flow from your heart 
that all might see and seeing believe. Amen, you are dismissed.